All right, why don't you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, please. The message entitled false teaching deceives and destroys. Uh, false teaching and heresy have always made their way into the church, so it is no surprise that there are so many warnings in the scriptures constantly. False teaching is like, um, like a contagious disease. If you don't catch it at the beginning, it may kill you. It's how dangerous it is. Paul uh, told Timothy about the, um, his commitment to protect the gospel and gave him some good counsel on how to protect the people that he was shepherding at Ephesus uh, from the false teachers that were now already within the church teaching, infiltrating, and affecting others. Um, from verse 14 to 15, Paul uh, had given to Timothy here um, the counsel from the positive perspective first, and now um, Paul is going to do the same from the negative to protect the gospel, both positive and negative. It's always there in the scriptures. Um, and this is to avoid false teaching, uh, and he's going to use primarily two men as his object lesson, as we'll see. So let me read our text here, 16 to 18. It says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, whom who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. There are three things that characterize Paul's counsel to avoid false teaching here. First, you have the command to shun, the beginning of verse 16. Second, you have the commentary on why they are to shun. The rest is 16, and the first part is 17. And then you have, thirdly, the culprits. They are to shun the remainder of 17 and 18. The command to shun comes first, but shun profane and idle babblings. Notice the command stands in direct opposition to what just has been stated in the previous two verses. I said that's the positive. The adjective here is an adversative or a contrasting conjunction. We, we use it all the time in our English, and it, in the Greek, it's much more clear. Uh, the positive counsel was given in verse 14 and 15. The negative counsel is given now here. The scriptures often state both the positive and the negative to comprise competent, full counsel of God. Sometimes... People will try to stack the scriptures to one end or the other at the exclusion of the other, and that's wrong. The whole counsel of God. The Bible does not contradict itself, but it complements itself. So you have to make sure that you're staying within the context and seeing it in the whole counsel of God. Um, Paul tells Timothy a little further on that he is to flee youthful lust on the negative side, but then... He is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart on the positive side in verse 22 of chapter 2. 
So he deals with the negative in one aspect he's talking about, then he'll give the positive later on. They're both go, they're both the same. You tell your child, it says, now I don't want you to hang out with them. And then you say, I want you to hang out with those over there. You have the negative and the positive. They both reinforce each other. Again, we have the contrasting conjunction, but. James tells us that we are to submit to God on the positive side, and on the negative side, we are to resist the devil, and he will flee in James 4, 7. There's no contradiction. They complement each other. Now, notice the command is to shun profane and idle babblings. The word to shun simply means to stand aloof. To go around literally something and to, to step out of the way of something or avoid it altogether. The tense is the present imperative to continue to avoid, literally continue to avoid as you are doing. So he's not saying they're not doing. The tense tells you that they are shunning. He says now continue to do that. The word is translated avoid in Titus 3.9. It says, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. There are some people that all they want to do is just argue. There's always people that give questions, and honest questions, there's no problem, no matter how foolish they may seem. But you always can sense the people that simply want to make an argument. They're already, they have it all stacked up and they, they, they're trying to convince you of their perspective on text or their doctrine or whatever it may be. And um, people like that, I don't spend much time with. Uh, I just tell them, you know what, talk to me later on. I got other people to talk to right now. If they really want to talk to me alone, they can do that later on. Um, the word profane Babylos is made up of two words and refers to a person who talks about the things of God as if they were, listen, ordinary and common. In other words, these are people that deal with God's word without any reverence. They're very flippant. They, 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 they actually act out like performers on the stage. There's no godly fear, not in their conduct, how they handle themselves, let alone even the words, and we see that much today through the emergent church as people cuss from the pulpit and everything else. It's amazing to me. Now, the word profane is made up of two words, and it refers to this person to talk about these things as common and ordinary. The first is binos, and it means the step. And the second is bellows, and it means threshold. So this would be describing a person who would step over the threshold of a sacred place to defile it. It is very descriptive. It's someone who does not revere something that is said to be holy. Now, of course, when the pagans would use this, they're using it for their idols and stuff like that. But Paul is using it for the context of godly things, the word of God, doctrine, the people of God. The word is used to identify the person and their activities in uh, 1 Timothy 1, 9, 4, 7, 6, 20, Hebrews 12, 16. The phrase 
Idle babblings means empty words that are sounded out. It's almost like politicians that you hear today. They pontificate. They say all kinds of things. At the end of it, they said nothing. They just talking platitudes. There's no content. There's no message. There's nothing to hang on. They just talk. This compound word is used one at a time, and it is to identify the false teaching at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 6.20. Remember, Paul was at Ephesus for three and a half years. He left Timothy there. Later on, the apostle John took over the church, great shepherds. And yet, as you look at the church in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, Ephesus is the first. And though they checked everything by doctrine and everything else, they had left their first love. But as you move on from Ephesus, the false teacher had already come in. Right here at this point, they're still there. They're there. The phrase is used to identify the false teaching of those teachers, which amount to nothing more than uh, empty words, meaningless, useless, empty chatter. Um, Today, with the um, internet, um, you can go right on the internet and you can pick any church you want and you can put on videos and you can hear these guys. You can see these guys. Uh, when we first started in the 70s and 80s, you didn't have that advantage. You know, you had to go to the church and all But you can, because you can read their faith statement and it's been a general thing and it does sound good, but then you put them on whether it be audio or visual, and you begin to see them, how they conduct themselves, and to hear the things they say to the scripture and you judge it. And it is amazing today that there is no godly fear about the things of God. The problem with uh, not shunning certain things that are bad or evil is that you are influenced by them. When Woodrow Wilson, a progressive liberal, was president of Princeton University, he spoke these words to a parents group. Quote, I get many letters from your parents about your children. You want to know why we people here at Princeton can't make more out of them and do more for them. Let me tell you the reason we can't. It may shock you just a little, but I am not trying to be rude. The reason is that you are, they are your sons, reared in your homes, blood of your blood, bone of your bone. They have absorbed the ideas of your homes. You have formed and fashioned them. They are your sons. In those malleable, moldable years of their lives, you have forever left your imprint upon them. Due to the morals and the ethics of that day, the progressive liberals did not influence many of those people that went to college. But they had already made the inroads. Now we see the full blossom of liberalism in education through the indoctrination and the selling of college as if it's the only thing and that everybody is to be there. Probably 60% of the people in college do not belong there today. And because of that, our nation has suffered by losing all the trades. 
And many of these kids end up with a bill of 200000 150000 with a degree in basket weaving or climate change. And then they wonder why they can't get a job when they could get into a trade and probably make a lot more money and be more efficient. But it's the selling of this whole idea that everybody needs to go to college, not everybody. There are people who are smarter than people who go to college. There are people who make more money on the average than people who go to college. There's nothing wrong with college if that's what you're capable of and you're very keyed on what you're gonna do. But you've gotta keep in mind what you're gonna do for a living. How much money are you gonna make in terms of what you have in store, what your plans are, and as the Lord leads you, and at the same time, are you gonna be able to pay that back? Is it gonna take you 20 years to pay that back? Then what's the point? <laughs> And those are things that we are confronted with now. The command to shun does not contradict the command to give an answer to every person for the calling that's in us either. So we don't avoid people. People ask you a question about evolution and you just ignore them. No, 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 that's not what he's talking about. We're to give a defense of our faith. And um, there's an exchange of words and possible ideas that we have to exchange. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 um, because the gospel is the only hope of salvation, right? So we have the answers, the real answers that can be reliable and that they are absolute truth. And they can stand up, up against any generation, against any level of education, against anything. Because absolute truth that is scientific truth on a scientific level of validity is not a contradiction to the scriptures. Only the hypothesis of science, which is not science at all, is just... An opinion. That's all it is. A person who is well known for their heretical stance is not interested in truth, but simply in propagating false doctrine is to be avoided, we're told in 2 Timothy 2.23, also Titus 3.10-11. Admonish a heretic once or twice, and after that, give him up. Don't even waste your time on him. Pretty strong words. There are many who pride themselves in their ability to debate by their use of words. These individuals often twist the scriptures to their own destruction, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.17. There are people who go to seminary and they never study the Bible at all. But they do a thesis or their PhD on why the Bible has errors or some weird doctrine they, they invent or something. And then they become destructive to the gospel. They're not there to proclaim the gospel or to defend the gospel. These pride themselves in belonging to a circle of elite ones, which is a mark of carnality in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. I'm of Paulus, I'm of Peter, and I'm of Christ. They don't see themselves as one in the body of Christ. And they pride themselves in their intellect. But a lot of that intellect is based upon the leaning on the understanding of the world, on pure intellectualism that is really contrary to spiritual truth. And it happens all the time. 
churches that were right on, churches that were used by God tremendous, get it overtaken by pastors who are um, completely unbelievers. And they begin to duplicate themselves by the people they attract and the people they disciple. These men produce bad fruit. Division, dissension, contention. In the sense of being and trying to persuade everybody to their heretical point of view. And therefore, remember, it takes time to learn and to grow in whatever is good. Hard work. And when things go bad or turn to the bad, it doesn't take that, that much to have it stick to you. It takes a lot of discipline, it takes a lot of teaching, it takes a lot of oversight to watch over a child, to prepare them for life. And all it takes is one stupid decision as they yield to their friends or their own mind, and it can all go up in smokes instantly. And so the command to shun, it's not an option for the believer. Sometimes people say, well, why are you so adamant about doctrine? Because doctrine is wheat. It's food. It's protection. It's as important as your immune system to your body. You're able to fight false doctrine. Now notice, secondly, the commentary on why they are to shun for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. The commentary reveals their character. Their character is not static, but it's leading them onwards, progressively worse. The phrase will increase simply means to beat forward, to advance, to proceed. The word is used for Jesus who increased in wisdom and by Paul for the night being far spent and his advancement in the Jewish religion. Luke 2.52, Romans 13.12, and Galatians 1.14. This is in the bad sense. This is their character. Character is who you are. A reputation is who people think you are. Now, if your reputation is based on character, that's, that's who you are. But usually there's a reputation with a very bad character. And that's hypocrisy. That's deception. Now notice their destination is to a life unlike God. The word ungodliness means having no respect, reverence, or honor for God or for the things of God. They treat them as common, as we said earlier. The letter A before a Greek word negates the word. In this case, no godliness. Righteousness is my dealing with you, you with me, with man. Godliness is the vertical, me and God. Righteousness is the horizontal. The vertical is the source of the horizontal. If you're godly, then you're going to be righteous. You can appear to be righteous, but not be godly. It's based on 
what people think you are and not who you really are. The individual is godly because he walks with God. By the same way, individuals are ungodly due to their attitudes towards God and the things of God without any respect, honor for the things that they play with. The danger of this type of lifestyle is it can lead to blasphemy. 1 Timothy 1.20 says that as he deals with people who have made shipwreck of the faith and speak blasphemous, and he hands them over to Satan that they learn not to blaspheme. Listen to me. We do not hand over non-believers to Satan. We do not turn them over. They belong to him already. You turn over believers who have walked away from the faith, gotten deceived by, um, by false teaching, or are in sin and refuse to repent. Is that clear? A young man who was sleeping with his stepmother, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, turn him over to Satan, chapter 5. Okay? Non-believers already belong to him. All right? Now notice the commentary reveals the content of their message. The word cancer, gangrena, comes from the word to eat or gnaw at. It appears only this one time in the New Testament, we get our word gangrene from it. A bacteria that destroys healthy flesh, a disease by which any part of the body suffering from inflammation becomes so corrupt that unless a remedy be reasonably applied in time, the evil continues to spread, attacks the part, and it eats away even to the bone, and it will kill you. This is how Paul describes false teaching. A very vivid picture that would not escape any future generation. They would not need any interpretation. The statement of fact, notice, is that it will spread, literally, to have pasture or to grow. The term is a medical one for the spreading of diseases. Their message does not promote spiritual life that leads to godliness. The focus is on the false teachers who will advance in this spiritual deterioration and decay the instruments of the message. Always. You have predators out there are looking for children. They appear to be friendly. They'll offer little gifts. But they're destroyers. Same thing. The message is spiritual deception. The message leads to spiritual death. A man once dreamed that he was in hell. When asked to give an account what he had seen, if there were flames there and suffering there and, and wrecked uh, and malign creatures with um, whom he had to associate, and if the place resounded with oaths of blasphemy, he said, quote, yes, but there was something 
far worse than that. I was compelled to face my influence. I knew that I deserved punishment for I had scorned and rejected Jesus Christ, but my sorest pain was to see the effect of my life had been upon others. Jesus said, if you stumble one of these little ones, it'd be better for you to tie a millstone. It's not a little stone. That sucker's about six to eight feet tall, about two feet thick around your neck and cast in the sea. So much for Jesus, meek and mild. God does not wink at those who deceive others spiritually. As you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, it is something that God takes very, very serious. Scripture is clear that the closer we get to the coming of Jesus Christ, the character of evil men will increase. Evil men and apostles will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, 2 Timothy 3.13. Just stop and think on the moral and ethical sense, if you're around 40 or 50 or even 60 or 70, of what it was when you were a teen and how much has increased to the point where society does not consider anything immoral or unethical. And it really hasn't taken that long. Really fast. The stressful times of the last days will open the door for these deceivers to deceive. Second um, Timothy 3, 1 through 7 says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, more than rather lovers of God, having a form of God, but denying the power, and from such people turn away, for of this sort, are those who creep into households and make captive gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You're watching CNN, ABC, SNNBC, reading the Times, we're there. And yet, the New Testament, Rome, was much worse than we are right now. That's not defending where we're at, but every society, once it rejects the gospel, will get worse and worse and worse. The Holy Spirit prophesied that in the latter times, periods in the age of grace, there would be some who would depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4.1. This is a periodic uh, departure in every generation as God is doing the work. Now, you cannot depart from something you were never at. Calvinists will say, well, they weren't born again. Really? So when you depart from the sanctuary, you were never in the sanctuary? When you get out of your car, you were never in your car? You don't need Greek. You just got to use your brains. That's all. And so people, once again, twist the scriptures. 
And rather than allowing the full warning and sting of the scripture to deal with people, these pastors soften it, which only encourages sinfulness. There's no restraint. The scriptures are equally clear as to the increasing evil content of their message. Um, 2 Peter 2, 12 through 14 says, But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things where they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained to covetous practices and are accursed children. Very, very clear and strong warnings. They use carnal means to allure people and enslave them. Second Peter 2, 18 and 20 said, For when they speak great swelling words of, uh, of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, our sin nature, through lewdness, and ones who have all actually, now listen carefully, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. These are people who are born again, and they're being deceived. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Listen carefully. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. That cannot be describing a non-believer. Never. It's talking about a person who has escaped the corruption, who has been born again, accepted Christ, and they once again are enticed and they go back. Very, very, very clear. They will be judged by God more severe due to their knowledge of righteousness and having turned from it. Second Peter 2, 21 and 22 says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them but it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, or a pig, have, having washed to her swallowing in the mire. Now, Calvinists will pick up on this last verse. They see, you're not a pig. You're, you're not a dog. You're a child of God. No, 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 wait a minute. We're all pigs. We're all dogs. It's talking about the old sin nature. Look at the context. It's an illustration. You do not make doctrine out of an illustration. He's already described those who have escaped and they entangle themselves again. What are they doing? They're no longer walking in obedience to God, not trusting the power of God. They're going back, leaning to their sinful nature. All right? It's an illustration. You do not make doctrine out of an illustration. And they know it. They're very dishonest. And so the commentary on why they were to shun was for their own protection. Now notice thoroughly the culprits they are to shun. 
verse 17, the last half, and 18. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow, listen, the faith of some. Who, who, whose faith are they overthrowing? The non-believer? No. The believer. Notice the two individuals are called out by name. People get mad at me because I call names. Tough. That's the way it is. If there's a kid on the block who's going to corrupt my son or my daughter, I'm going to name him. And he's going to know that I name him. And I do the same with false teachers or whatever it is. My hope and my attempt is to protect the body of Christ. I pray they repent. I pray they come back. I pray they ask forgiveness. I pray they can return back. But until then, you name them because you're protecting the sheep. Notice they're identified by the phrase, are of this sort, what he has just described. They are said to be profane and vain babblers. They are said to be those who will increase the more ungodliness, those whose message spreads like a cancer, gangrene. That's the association here. The name Hymenus comes from human, the god of weddings, meaning belonging to marriage. What a contradiction. <laughs> so your name's Jesus, but you live like the devil. <laughs> Such a contradiction. He's mentioned only one other time when he is identified with Alexander. Both are said to have made shipwreck of the faith in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. They were both delivered to Satan by Paul in hope that they might learn to blaspheme there in 1 Timothy 1.20. He turns them over to Satan. The fact that his name is mentioned first in both texts probably means he was the leader of the two and the one that God holds responsible more than the other. The apostle Paul, in fact, is calling him a heretic, one of the opponents of the Apostle Paul. Now, Philetus means beloved. This is the first and only time that he is mentioned in the New Testament. The man is believed by some to have been a disciple of Hymenius. Again, we're not sure. It's speculation. They probably were from Ephesus, and could have been prominent persons since he calls them out by name. Now, you remember in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is leaving, he stops before going to the church and he calls the elders and he warns them about the three years he's been there and that how some of them are going to rise up and bring disciples to themselves and teach things that are not right. He was prophesying. Here's the fulfillment years later. So these two guys, because he names them by name, most likely were two of the people that came out of Ephesus, and he's warning the church to protect the church. Not because he hates these two guys, but to protect the body. Very important. 
They could have been the main instigators of the apostasy. They could have been two of the elders, as I said, in Acts 20. They were two of the five mentioned by name to Timothy as a warning to the church. You have Philetus and Hermogenes that are turned away from Paul in 2 Timothy 1.15. You have Demas, who had forsaken Paul, having loved the present world, 2 Timothy 4.10. So five names Paul gives. All right? Remember, Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not being vindictive. He's not, you know, taking it personal. This is the Holy Spirit directing and guiding him. Now, notice the failure of these two men is described in three ways. They are straight concerning the truth. The word straight means to miss the mark. Once again, another word in the Greek that describes their error. We get our word target from it. The word sin comes from that. You missed the mark. It used to come from an old archery game where there's a circle. And you would shoot an arrow and you'd want to shoot it through the circle. If you missed it, they would say, you're a sinner. You missed the mark. Okay? Paul says, all have come short of the glory of God. All are sin. We've all missed the mark. The word appears three times in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1, 6, 6, 21 in here. Now notice they are of those who did not rightly divide the word of truth, but made shipwreck of the faith. You cannot make shipwreck of the faith unless you have embraced the faith. All right? It's real simple. You have to be on the ship to be shipwrecked. You've had to boarded the ship and began your journey between point A and B, arrival. The indication being is they'll never arrive with the exception of repentance. Notice the word truth, Alicia. The same as in verse 15, which is always used for the reliability and genuine message of the gospel in the pastoral epistles, being a key word. It's found 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 times, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. A key word. Truth. Reliable about anything it is talking about, whether it be sin, God, salvation, redemption, whatever it may be. Fourteen times the word appears in these um, pastoral epistles. Now, they had taught contrary notice to the teaching of Scripture regarding the essential doctrine for salvation. What is doctrine? It says right there that the resurrection had already passed. People say, well, you know, I mean, it's no big deal. I can still believe in Jesus, even though I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe in the resurrection. No, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. If you say you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, you've got to believe Genesis 1-1 to Revelation, uh, the very last verse, okay? It's not a smorgasbord Christianity, okay? You can't pick and choose. It's like being pregnant. You are or you aren't. One of the two. 
just the way it is. They taught that the resurrection was fulfilled already in the spiritual raising and baptism unto new life. So they spiritualized the resurrection. Now what the resurrection really means is the baptism, and then when you come up, that's it, because Paul gives the illustration in Romans 6. Okay? And so that's how they interpret it, maybe. That there was no physical resurrection at all is another one for sure. But yet the resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel. If you, don't, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's what you're doing when you deny the resurrection of the believer, because one's the source and extension of the other. You can't say that Jesus is your Lord. Impossible. The implications are several. Paul the Apostle, when he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, gives them to us. It is this, that our preaching is in vain, that our Christian faith is vain, that Christ is not risen, that we are still in our sins, that those who have fallen asleep, meaning died in Christ, have perished, that we are of all men most miserable, having hope in Christ only in this life, that there is no judgment of the just or unjust, that God is a liar. That's what you're saying if you deny the resurrection, Paul says. Pretty severe, don't you think? And so people today say, well, I'm a Christian, but they get drunk all the time. They get loaded all the time. They take drugs. They fornicate, commit adultery. They act like everybody in the world. And they still call themselves a Christian. And they don't believe the doctrine of the Bible. Well, it's impossible. Absolutely impossible. The Greek concept of the body was that it was a prison for the soul when they would be released. The, the Greeks looked at the body as a burden and that their soul wanted to be released. So the idea of a physical resurrection was only to be imprisoned again, a repugnant thought to the Greek. Sometimes you hear Christians say, well, you know, our, our, our body, you know, it, 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 it contains our soul and our spirit, and, and, you know, you're just, it's a prison. No, it isn't. This is the temple of God. My spirit and my soul are not in prison. They are made alive by God, and they are glorifying God in this body, which is the temple of God. They had a saying, the Greeks, soma, sema. The body is a tomb. That's never a Christian concept. That's a Greek concept. Never. The Gnostics later developed an entire system of dualism where all matter was evil, spirit was good, therefore nothing physical could ever be good. Therefore you could and take advantage of the physical, you know, and have pleasure and get drunk and be a glutton and everything else because your body is one thing and your spirit's another and they don't affect one another. How convenient religion. Gnosticism. It was already there first. John has written against Gnosticism. It develops completely in the second century. We still have it with us under different names, different things. Again, then you get the opposite thing. You have asceticism, 
of denying yourself, and that's how you're going to become holy. And then the other end is that it doesn't matter, so you're licentious, you just do whatever you want. You have the two extremes. Now, notice they overthrow the faith of some. The word overthrow means to overturn or destroy. It's found only one at a time in Titus 1, 11. Titus is commanded to stop the mouth of insubordinate and idle talkers and deceivers whose mouths must be stopped, he says, to the fact that they subvert whole houses by teaching things that they ought not for dishonest gain. Amazing. The Apostle Paul is labeling them as dangerous heretics who oppose the true faith and the church. They were not only responsible for the introduction of false teaching, but for the shipwreck of the faith of others who had believed. Simple question. If Christians cannot be deceived, why write the letter? Why warn? Then how do you explain that he gives us eternal life when we're born again? Does he take it back? Well, that's a, re that's a rationale. That's an intellectual argument. They're not in contradiction. It's a true statement. And we abide in Christ Jesus. Would you believe that a person can say, I'm married to my wife, I've been married 40 years, but I've had 10 girlfriends, and I'm with a girlfriend right now? Of course not. It's real simple. Faithfulness, commitment. You got to live who you say you are. They being deceived became deceivers of others, men and women regarding spiritual truth. These individuals are the enemies of God and the people of God. Joel Olstein, Blinky. I don't see how people can even listen to him and call themselves Christians, let alone that he would, he's a motivational speaker, calling himself a pastor. A stadium full of people. Do you know what judgment that is upon him? Amazing. For three years, David Chakavaksville gave hundreds of lectures throughout his native Georgian Soviet Republic, we're told. He spoke on the technological revolution, the atom, modern medicine, and love in the advanced society. Then it was found that he was a janitor with no scientific training whatsoever. This gentleman evidently got inspiration from the place where he worked, the Georgian Academy of Sciences. He printed cards identifying himself as a professor, doctor of technical sciences. The newspaper, Izvestia, said 
he soon had a busy lecture circuit with $20 an hour in pay. The gentleman said he earned $820 in his first lecture tour. Of course, this is years back. But the point being, he knew nothing. He passed himself off and people went along with it because they didn't check the information. People love to be deceived. They take the easy way. You know why a river meanders, right? It's looking for the softest soil. <laughs> so it can make its way down with gravity. When a river has power, it cuts straight through. Unless it comes to a surface that is harder than the force behind it, then it will meander. That's a picture of man and deceivers. The scriptures name people often for the sake of the protection of the people from deception. Simon the sorcerer attempted to purchase the Holy Spirit with money, and Ilum as the sorcerer attempted to turn Sergius Paulus from the faith, and Paul dealt with them severely in Acts 8, 22, and 13, 9 through 11. and Hermogenes turned away from Paul and others in Asia also in 2 Timothy 1, 15. Alexander the coppersmith did Paul much harm and resisted their words. Therefore, he warned them, knowing he would do so to the other believers in 2 Timothy 4, 14-15. Calls them out by name. Demons had forsaken Paul, having loved this present world. 2 Timothy 4.10. Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence and rule over people, opposed John and excommunicated him and many others. In 3 John 9 through 10. It's all over the scriptures. Why do people get upset today? The scriptures are very clear about the responsibility of the watchman of the city who is to warn the people, or he will be held responsible for the blood of those people. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 20. For that reason, we name those teachers who teach that you can have anything you want if you have enough faith, prosperity doctrine, positive confession, faith movement, whatever, seed faith, changes it, mutates its names through the years. For that reason, we name those who teach that there is such a thing as Christian psychology and they integrate humanism with the scriptures. You can't do that. So I name Dobson and others. They're not biblical. For that reason, we name those teachers who come and go with their emotional hypes and circus-type atmosphere, those who merchandise the people of God, seeker-friendly churches, emergent churches. I just finished watching a video of Pastor Bianca, the daughter of one of the pastors of Calvary Chapel Montebello, Pancho Juarez, who hangs out with all these heretical ladies and speaks blasphemous just vulgarity from the pulpit. She has a church in Orange County. Wow. I don't see how God doesn't smoke her. Amazing. Very grievous. No longer Calvary Child Montebello, it's called the Ark. 
and then she's a pastor in Orange County. Man. For that reason, we should also be ready to affirm and command, commend those who are profitable for ministry, like Onessa Forrest, like Mark, like Luke, like others. And we should know who they are, and we should pray for them, and we should thank God for them, as history has always marked those who have been faithful to God. Those who um, will serve anybody and everybody but will bow down to no one. We would honor such patriots like that of a nation. They're the heroes. It's no different than Christianity. It's the same. And so the culprits, they are to shun our dangerous heretics. Great counsel Paul gives to Timothy to avoid false teaching. Characterized by the command to shun, it's not an option. The commentary on why they were to shun was for their own protection. And the culprits they are to shun are dangerous heretics. Now, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. In fact, we're commanded to do so. Father, we thank you. We worship you. We thank you for tonight and your word, and we pray, Lord, you go before us, and that we would not be afraid to teach your truth, Lord. And Father, we pray for those who have strayed, those who have walked away from you, those who have become deceivers. And Lord, have sold out to the gainsaying of Balaam for money, for notoriety, for fame, for power. We pray that they repent, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you. We pray for those who are listening over the radio, Lord, tonight, that you would speak to their hearts if they don't know you, that they would turn and call on your name to be saved. If you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ, God would have you to turn and repent to him and be born again. A simple prayer of repentance is what God always requires. This is a simple prayer that if you want to be born again, you can pray to the Lord, and he will forgive you right now. He'll make a new creature of you. He'll give you a divine nature, his mind, his word, and the ability to be Christ-like by his grace through faith. This is your prayer to him right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.